0: Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Take just a moment and think about the single most amazing, massive, beautiful, or meaningful things that you have ever seen or may ever hope to see. I'm talking about the kinds of things that blow your mind, bring tears to your eyes. Make your hair stand on end. Take your breath away, leave you speechless, and stop you in your tracks. You know, those kinds of things. A few examples of my own. Number one, seeing the field during my first Cincinnati Reds game at Riverfront Stadium. I remember that. I stopped where I was standing and just looked. I couldn't believe I was seeing it. But my examples do get better. I also remember watching Olivia walk down the aisle at our wedding. And I vividly remember looking into Javen's eyes the first time I ever held him. Other examples might be the view from the peak of Mount Everest. Or the sheer enormity of the Grand Canyon. Or the latest photographs from the Hubble Space Telescope. I'm sure you can think of more. But now that I've named some of my examples, and you've thought of some of yours, I'm gonna stick my neck out there and say something that shouldn't be controversial in a church, but we often take for granted. And that statement is this. Jesus is better than all of them. That's the simple but profound message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. That's especially the message as we get our feet wet this morning in chapter 1. Jesus is better. We often forget those three words, but we absolutely must remember them. And that's particularly true when we're facing pressure from without or navigating struggles within. Whatever else we can imagine... Whatever else we see, whatever else we hope in, whatever else we worship, and whatever else we've tried, Jesus is better. So open up to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, or take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for these people. Thank you for this place. Thank you for your spirit. And Lord, thank you for your son. I pray that as we study the book of Hebrews over the next couple of months, that we would be captivated again, or maybe captivated for the first time by just how great you are, just how majestic you are just how much better you are than anything and everything that we can wrap our minds around. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. If we already know you, help us get to know you better. And if we don't know you, I pray that we would come to know you for the first time and recognize your glory. I pray that you'd be with us as we worship you this morning. I pray that this time we have together would be beneficial for us, but even more importantly, just as importantly, honoring to you. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this room with these people, glorifying you. I pray that you would accept what we say and accept what we do as the act of worship that we intend it to be. We love you. We glorify you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get into the text of the book of Hebrews, let's do a little bit of background work. What exactly is it that we will be reading for the next two and a half months? Well, Hebrews is both a letter and a sermon. It was written slash delivered slash read some 35 years after Jesus's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. It was originally intended for a group of Christians, possibly in or around the city of Rome, who were suffering for their faith and tempted to try something else. Most of them were likely Jewish. After all, the book is called Hebrews. But there were probably some non-Jewish believers in the community as well. And while there have been numerous suggestions over the centuries about who wrote Hebrews, the truth is that we don't know. Some theories have included the Apostle Paul, because if nothing else, he wrote a lot. There's also Barnabas, who appears in the New Testament, Apollos from the book of Acts, a man named Clement, or a woman named Priscilla. But again, We don't know for sure who wrote this book. But what's more important than who wrote Hebrews is what Hebrews contains. This is not a high-minded, impractical, theological treatise. This is a personal appeal written by a real church leader for a real church made up of real people who he really cared about. But even more than that, this is not just an old letter written to some ancient people far away from here. The book of Hebrews is Christian scripture. It is authoritative. It's inspired by God. And it's intended for us. So starting in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So before he says anything else, the author of Hebrews informs us that God speaks. Now, that shouldn't be anything new to those familiar with the Old Testament. God speaks the world into existence in Genesis 1. He then speaks to people like Noah in chapter 6, Abraham in chapter 12, and many others in the chapters following. God speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He speaks to Israel as a whole in chapter 20. And of course, like the author of Hebrews said in verse 1, God speaks through prophets. Even bad ones like Jonah, who we talked about last week. God speaks. In a sense, that's nothing new. The author is just stating the obvious at this point. But you know, in another sense, there is something new going on here. God is still speaking. But the author claims that God is doing it in a new and different way. He's doing it in a better way. God has spoken to us not by prophets, but by his Son. So, on the one hand, this God that we're reading about in the book of Hebrews, this God we read about in the New Testament, is the same God we read about in the Old Testament. There's continuity in this one big story that we call the Bible. But on the other hand, there's also discontinuity. There's an undeniable sense in which God is doing something new, doing something better in and through Jesus Christ. And of course, speaking about Jesus, what does the author tell us about him? Well, in the understatement of the century, he tells us that Jesus is great. Jesus is not just a messenger. He's God's son. He's not just a servant. He's the heir of all things. God's son is not a created being. It's through him that the world was created. And Jesus is not just a man. He's the embodiment of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. Now, don't get me wrong. The prophets were important in their time and place. But Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus is better. And just for good measure, we don't only see Jesus' greatness in his identity. We see it in his acts and what he did. The same person we just talked about also made purification for sins. He suffered, bled, and died for sinners like us in a way that only he could. He rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father's right hand. So Jesus, in a statement that fails to do him justice... In both his identity and in his works is great. So then what or who could possibly be better than Jesus? Well, the answer is nothing. No person, no object, no vision, no experience could hold a candle to him. But with that said, And just bear with me here, for the sake of argument. What might give Jesus a run for his money? What other sort of being could really blow your mind if you got the chance to see one? How about, oh, I don't know, an angel? Well, guess what? Jesus is not only better than the prophets, He is better than angels. Angels have a way of capturing the human imagination. We hear about people dreaming of angels. We read stories of those mysterious figures who perform some heroic deed, like rescuing a child from a burning building and then vanish before anyone can catch their name. I've heard of one angel who made a Major League Baseball All-Star game as both a hitter and a pitcher. We speculate about guardian angels. We collect angel figurines. We let our kids dress up as angels at Halloween. And angels are depicted in some of the greatest artwork in the history of human civilization. And who can blame us for our fascination with these things? The descriptions of angels in the Bible are nothing short of awesome. We read about angels with flaming swords guarding the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. In Revelation 22, the Apostle John is so impressed by an angel that he almost worships him. And just look at the description of the angels in Ezekiel chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Ezekiel says their appearance was like this. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went as for the likeness of the living creatures. Their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures and the fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. If you read that passage and you think, I just can't picture what he's describing. I just can't imagine what he's describing. That's the point. You can't wrap your mind around what Ezekiel saw. Angels are so awesome that we have a hard time believing in them. Or we may even be a bit ashamed to admit that we do. But even after a description like that. You know who's better? Jesus. Going back to Hebrews chapter one, picking up in verse five, the author continues for to which of the angels did God ever say you are my son? Today I have begotten you or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, but all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's us. So, the author of Hebrews uses this string of Old Testament passages to illustrate a point. Jesus is better than angels. That's true in terms of his relationship to God, his identity as God, and his function with God. We see the relationship angle in verses 5 and 6. Jesus is God's son, angels are God's servants. Angels worship Jesus, not the other way around. We see the identity in verses 7 through 12. Jesus is eternal. Angels are created. Jesus is the king on God's throne, while the angels gather around the throne. And we see the function in verses 13 and 14. Jesus conquered sin, death, and Satan himself. Angels are ministering spirits. Jesus saves sinners. Angels help sinners. There's a big difference. Now, with all that said, we don't want to sell the angels too short. They're made by God to do his will. And while they're not divine, they're also not human. They exist for the good of believers like us. We should thank God for them. And yes, we should believe in them. But we also should never make the mistake of thinking that they are better than Jesus. They're not. He's better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than anything and everything you can imagine. But you may be wondering... What does Hebrews chapter 1 have to do with us? After all, we're probably not that tempted to choose prophets or angels over Jesus. But allow me to suggest that if Jesus is better than all the things that his original audience might be tempted to worship, prioritize, or pursue then the author of Hebrews would also tell us that Jesus is better than all the things that we're tempted to worship, prioritize, or pursue. Here's what I mean. Perhaps the Hebrews needed to be reminded that Jesus is better than prophets and better than angels. Okay? We need to be reminded that Jesus is better than, for example... Our good works. Now there's nothing wrong with wanting to be good people who benefit the world around us. We should all strive to be moral, upstanding, respectable citizens marked by honesty, integrity, courage, and justice, especially if we bear the name Christian. But if you think that your actions your acts of charity, selflessness, and self-reliance are enough to make purification for your sins, then you are sadly mistaken. Because only Jesus can do that. He is better than your good works. But Jesus is also better than worldly success. I mean, who doesn't want to have their basic needs met? And be able to enjoy many of the good things that God has made. Who doesn't want to have our knowledge, our work ethic, our skills recognized and rewarded? And who doesn't want to leave a positive legacy for those after us? But if push comes to shove, and we have to choose between worldly or temporal success and union with Christ, the choice should be easy. Because Jesus is so much better. He's also better than fleeting pleasures. Following Christ can be hard. It may require us to abandon things that we value, refuse things that we once wanted, or pursue things that have little obvious or immediate payout. But we remember that the challenges of following Jesus in this life pale in comparison to the reward of resting in his eternal presence. He's better than all the temporary pleasures that our fallen world can ever offer us. He's also better than other so-called gods. It simply has to be said in our pluralistic society That the Jesus of the book of Hebrews, the Jesus of the Bible, is not just one of many paths to the same summit. He's not one of many gods that we can choose to suit our fancy, but all ultimately accomplish the same thing in the end. Jesus is not just one of many good options, like going down the cereal aisle and just picking which one looks good at the moment. The Bible is thoroughly monotheistic. There is only one true God. And any so-called God besides him is an imposter at best. Jesus is better than them all. And Jesus is better than whatever else we're looking to. For hope, for value, for meaning, for truth, for answers, for fulfillment. You name it. Some people idolize family. Others idolize political engagement. Still others idolize activism. But whatever your idol is, whatever it is you're looking to for security, significance, and joy, Jesus is better than all of it. But, you know, in addition to knowing that Jesus is better than all these things, allow me to make another suggestion about what this chapter might teach us, why this might matter to us. We often hear people worry about the future of the Christian faith. We hear people say that our world is getting more and more secular. Kids are leaving the church and not coming back. Christians are backwards, outdated, and irrelevant on a good day. We respond by coming up with all kinds of tips, tricks, arguments, and gimmicks to try and get people back into church. Try to make Christianity more attractive. And you know, some of those ideas are genuinely thoughtful and genuinely creative. Others are awkward or embarrassing. And still others are downright irreverent. But if we're concerned about the future of our faith in a changing world, maybe a good place to start would be rediscovering our ability to talk about how great Jesus is. We could get inspiration from John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or Colossians 1, where Paul says that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. We could turn to Philippians 2, where Paul describes Jesus as the one before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Or maybe we could read passages like Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Sounds a lot like Ezekiel when you read it. John turned to see the voice that was speaking to him, and when he turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Just read that again. Think about that. Someone holding stars. Stars Then in chapter 22, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. If Jesus really is as great as we say he is, as great as the author of Hebrews makes him out to be, then let's talk about it. Better yet, let's make it known to the world. Finally, we mentioned earlier that the audience reading the book of Hebrews was suffering for their faith. And we'll see that in much more detail in the coming weeks and months. But for now, we should recognize that times of suffering have a way of testing us. They have a way of exposing what we really hope in, what we really believe. It's when times are bad, not when times are good, That we find out whether we really believe Jesus is as great as some out-of-touch preacher says he is. But according to Hebrews, Jesus is better than anything and everything else we can imagine. And no circumstances we find ourselves in can ever change that truth. You know, there are all kinds of amazing sights In the world, we listed off some of them earlier, and I'm sure you can think of more of your own. But none of them is better than Jesus. He's greater than the prophets, he's greater than angels, and he's greater than any other idol we might try and cook up. So may we be captivated by Jesus above all else. May we hope in him in this life and in the next. And may we not hesitate to tell the world about how great he really is. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together Thank you for the opportunity to just sit and think and reflect and remind ourselves of your greatness. None of the words that we can come up with can possibly do your majesty, your power, your glory, justice. So thank you that you've given us words that do a far better job of it. You've given us your word. So, Lord, I pray that as we read your words about yourself, telling us just how great you really are, that we would come to believe those words and that we would learn to speak of you using similar words, that our words, our language, would show the world just how awesome you are. But I also pray that would go beyond our words, that the content of our lives would testify to your glory, your greatness, your power, and your goodness. Lord, thank you that someone has Great as you, as glorious and mighty and beyond our full understanding, would subject yourself, humble yourself, submit yourself to death, even death on a cross, to make purification for our sins. As great as you are, you were not above saving sinners like us. And that alone is hard to wrap our minds around so thank you for your greatness but also thank you for your grace i pray that you'd watch over us as we prepare to leave this place help us glorify you because we've seen your glory we love you we ask this all in christ's name amen